3: Once the peroxide chanteuse of the New York New Wave scene,
4: Debbie Harry is today a true rock icon. I'm Greg Codd of the Chicago Tribune. And I'm Jim DeRogatis from WBEZ and Columbia College. We welcome Blondie lead singer Debbie Harry. And Greg and I review the latest release from singer, songwriter, and poet Leonard Cohen. That's coming up on Sound Opinions.
3: From WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX, you're listening to Sound Opinions. And now it's time for some music news.
4: That is a little bit of the 20th century composer Shostakovich. Not somebody we play around here much, Greg, but he's one of many artists whose work can no longer be performed for free by orchestras across the country, thanks to a new ruling by the Supreme Court. In a 6-2 decision, the court ruled that, yes, once a piece of music has entered the public domain, it can be re upholding an earlier law passed in '94. Orchestra conductor and University of Denver professor Lawrence Golan was lead plaintiff in the case, representing musicians and artists, conductors from around the country who wanted work in the public domain to remain in the public domain. He joins us now over the phone. Lawrence, it's an interesting story, your involvement in this uh, long, long fight. How did you come to be at the center of this?
2: good question. Really, it's, it's not about me. I'm just representing an entire industry, the orchestral industry, classical music. And frankly, I just got sort of recruited to be the, the lead plaintiff. I guess you could say it's sort of like taking one for
4: the team. <laughs> you probably didn't know what you were getting into when you signed up. Uh, no, on. I, I have
3: to admit I did not. But nonetheless, this ruling is going to deeply affect how you go about your, your business as a conductor. Explain how this is going to adversely affect your livelihood.
2: Well, just to clarify, the adverse effect already happened in 1994. It affected the entire music industry, among other industries, and what we were hoping with this case was to get that overturned so that we went back to how it was before '94. Pre-1994, before the GATT Treaty, the way it worked was uh, for for all of these pieces by Shostakovich, Prokofiev, Stravinsky, etc., an orchestra could go to a music store and buy the music. On average, let's say for a symphony, you, you could purchase it for $75. And then once you owned the music, you could mark it up, perform it as many times as you want, year after year, for that $75 purchase. ¶¶ After 1994, those pieces got taken out of the public domain. They went back under copyright, and copyrights are owned by the publishers, and the publishers rent those pieces. Uh, And on average, again, I mean, there's a wide variety of prices, but let's just say on average $800 per performance. So a weekend set of three performances can really add up. For the major orchestras, New York, Chicago, San Francisco, et cetera, they're not very happy about it, but they can still manage. They, they will play the pieces that they want to perform and, and pay the rental costs they need to. But for the smaller orchestras, university orchestras, high school, youth orchestras, and even smaller professional orchestras, it just goes beyond what they have in the budget so those smaller orchestras are often prevented from playing that whole body of music, and, at and all.
4: some some famous pieces, including some great ones to introduce young people to the orchestra, like Peter and the Wolf. That's right.
2: Peter and the Wolf is probably the most famous example of one of these uh, restored copyright works. It's by Prokofiev. Used to be able to buy it and play it for $75. Now it's $800 per performance. On average, many orchestras are just not playing that piece for student concerts anymore. They, They choose other pieces, which is actually ironic because in theory the motivation behind the GATT treaty was to protect and to somehow be beneficial to these composers who actually have been dead for decades but for the most part the pieces just aren't getting played.
3: This seems to apply primarily to foreign works and to bring them in line with the way they are treated overseas in other words a quid pro quo from the US Congress to institutions overseas saying okay we're going to treat your work the same way you treat ours. Is that your understanding of it?
2: Yes, the intentions of the GATT treaty were to align everything internationally in terms of copyrights and actually it was a good faith effort on the on the part of Congress to pass this in the hopes that other foreign countries would then respect our copyright laws more because they weren't actually I mean things were getting pirated I'm sure you've probably heard this uh, mm-hmm. in many countries our CDs music everything gets pirated over there so it was really with great intentions Unfortunately it didn't work because the things our things are still getting pirated elsewhere so it sort of backfired
3: one of your attorneys Anthony felzone made the point is copyright something that's going to benefit authors or something that's going to benefit society? And the two dissenting justices, Breyer and Alito, they essentially said this ruling doesn't encourage anyone to produce a single new work. Is that your take on it, Lawrence?
2: Absolutely. You know, that's the original intent of copyright law was to promote creative output on the part of authors and composers and artists. But in this case, everybody involved is dead. So there's no way that they're going to be encouraged to create more.
4: Mm -hmm. Lawrence, you're someone who's devoted your life to the arts. Obviously, you want to see artists protected and their careers flourish. What is fair? Is it no contest that Beethoven is public domain? I mean, where do you think this should fall to foster the arts at the same time that artists' rights are protected?
2: Right. Well, I absolutely think that it's fair for living composers to have their pieces under copyright and to get compensation for that? Absolutely. That's not what this is about. This is about pieces that were written decades ago by people who died decades ago. And frankly, I am an artist. My colleagues are artists and composers. And most people I know are not in it for the money, (laughs) frankly. They create a piece of work because it grew out of them, and they were inspired to do it. Now, do they want to get paid for it? Of course they do. Do they need to make a living? Of course they do. But if given the option of you know, having your piece played 100 years after you're dead or having it not played because it's still under copyright, nobody can afford it, I think most people would, would choose to have it played.
3: So after a ruling like this, Lawrence, uh, where do you go? Do you regroup and try again, or do you effectively see this effort as essentially being um, dead for the foreseeable future?
2: You know, I, I, I would like to have the opinion of, of the lawyers involved with this to answer that question, but I know that waiting for this uh, decision, there was some thought that if it's a tie or if it's close, perhaps, you know, we as an industry could move forward. And, and try again with another suit but a six to two vote uh, isn't all that close so it may be that just the the issue has been officially decided and it's done
4: Lawrence Golan is an orchestra conductor and professor at the University of Denver he was the lead plaintiff in a recent Supreme Court case over copyright protection Lawrence thanks for talking to us
3: thank you very much for having me you're listening to sound opinions
2: Touch it, brain. watch it, turn it, leave it, start format it. Touch it, bring it, bade, watch it, turn it, leave it,
1: start format it.
4: We're hearing a little bit of the production style of Swizz Beats, a producer and artist who's been linked to the website MegaUpload.com, which made huge news last week, Greg. When the FBI, federal authorities in this country, shut it down, it is one of the web's most popular sites, has been ranked in some studies as the 13th most frequently visited site on the Internet, claims to have had about 50 million daily visits, and the feds in this country have shut it down for copyright violations. The shutdown is part of a federal indictment that accuses the company of running an international criminal organization like the mafia, only this one allowed illegal sharing of movies, television shows, e-books, and of course, music. Apparently, Mega Uploads executives made more than $175 million through subscription fees and online ads. You know, Greg, we've often made the point that it is the Wild West out there now for the Internet. But I tell you, some of these characters from sites like this are like more colorful than Jesse James, Billy the Kid, you name it. Right now, sitting in jail in New Zealand is Mega Upload founder Kim He was at the center of this FBI indictment. This is a character who owned 20 luxury cars 15 mercedes benzes a lamborghini a rolls royce phantom that one had the license plate god some of the other vanity plates were stoned mafia hacker and guilty i don't know, when you're riding around new zealand with a plate that says guilty i don't know how you defend yourself right but seven executives including Mr. mr.com were indicted swizzbeats who was in some negotiations with the company was not among those who were indicted But the thing that's interesting here, obviously the feds would like to position this as internet pirates, pure and simple. These were crooks. We've shut them down. Justice will be done. But some people use this site and its services for legal pursuits, legally sharing files. Is it the responsibility of the founders of a website if some people are using it illegally? Greg, this is the analogy we've made sometimes to the auto industry. Just because a car manufacturer makes an automobile that can go 120 miles an hour, are they responsible for the people that use the car to speed?
3: is the great Etta James with I'd Rather Go Blind. Etta James, who died recently at the age of 73 from complications of leukemia. You know, people have probably heard that song a lot in the last few weeks in tribute to Etta James, along with her biggest hit, At Last. And I think it creates a perception around Etta James that she was this uh, great ballad singer, which she was. I mean, incredibly nuanced of vocabulary with a big voice, could do these pop standards, could do jazz, but obviously there was a lot more to this woman than that. Consider that she has had a renaissance in recent years when uh, Beyonce covered, at last, almost note for note in that 2008 movie, Cadillac Records, a very loosely fictionalized account of the rise of chess records.
4: Yeah, I'll say, and in all due respect to Beyoncé, but like Etta James could have eaten her for breakfast.
3: (laughs) Well, Etta had a few unkind things to say about Beyoncé after seeing that movie, but let's just say I think it sort of paints Etta James into a very narrow corner. She was signed to Chess Records in 1960 and had her greatest successes with that Chicago label in the 60s and 70s. Remember, that was home to Chuck Berry, Muddy Waters, Howlin' Wolf, Willie Dixon. She was the first great female star on Chess. And the reason she got signed to that label was that even at the age of 15, you heard that Big, brassy, bawdy voice when she was recording stuff like Roll With Me, Henry, in answer to Hank Ballard and the Midnighters' Work With Me, Annie. Scandalous stuff for the 50s that had to be cleaned up when it was re recorded by other artists who turned it into bigger hits. Finally, she got her license to be herself on chess, though. She did everything from those standards, like I'd Rather Go Blind, and At Last. To raunchier stuff, and that's what I want to play in tribute to Etta. When I think of a song like In the Basement, you're thinking initially it's a Billy Davis lyric. It's a song that kind of paints this portrait of teenagers having kicks in their basement because they can't go anywhere else, right? I think Etta sort of gives the adult spin on it. The whole idea, you know, you're broke, you can't afford to go to the club, so you got to bring the club to you. Mm-hmm. You know, why not have fun in your own home? You can make that basement anything you want. It can be a bar, a bedroom, a dance club. That's the kind of party I want to go to. And that's the, that's the sense I get listening to Etta James roaring out this particular song. She does it in tandem with her friend, her childhood friend, Sugar Pie DeSanto, another great R&B singer from California, Etta and... Sugar Pie grew up in California before recording for Chess Records in 1966. Here's the great Etta James with In the Basement on Sound Opinions.
4: was the great etta james within the basement on sound opinions dead at 73 but greg that party she was singing about i wish i was there we're going to take a quick break but when we return we'll talk to one of the pioneers of new wave and punk blondie's debbie harry joins us in the studio and later in the show greg and i will review the latest from the iconic singer-songwriter leonard cohen that's when we return on sound opinions from wbez chicago and prx
3: Welcome back to Sound Opinions. We're joined now by longtime singer Debbie Harry of Blondie. In the mid-70s, Debbie and Blondie lead guitarist Chris Stein formed the band, and along with contemporaries like the Ramones, Johnny Thunders, the Talking Heads, helped pioneer this diversified sound coming out of downtown New York, what we now know today as punk and new wave. With Blondie, Debbie became a female icon as the band produced a string of hits that brought a little dance to that whole male-dominated rock scene. Last year, Blondie put out Panic of Girls, first album since 2003. So we began by asking Debbie Harry, why another record, and why now?
5: Well, that's what we do. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, we've been wanting to do one for a while, but uh, we were busy. We were on the road a lot, and the industry changed so radically. We were... um, Working with our management company, who also does marketing, and we're just trying to get distribution. Figure out how to do it. Uh, it's a different world, so took mm-hmm. a little while.
3: Yeah, it's 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 a tough time for putting out records in general. Is is that environment discouraging to an artist like yourself who has been making records for a, for a long time? It's obviously cha- you've you've seen every change there could be to <laughs> see in the record industry.
4: What what record industry? That's yeah, the, that's the that's change.
3: That's
5: better. Yeah, that's more uh, more appropriate. I think you know technology is always interesting, and I I like that. I think that we've always participated in changes, and and I think that it's important that we uh, go with the flow, go with the times, and there are pros and cons to you know digital versus analog, uh, you know CDs versus mp3s or whatever
3: but the mp3s i mean obviously that's that's what the music has come down to and i think you've always talked about you guys as as never thinking in terms of concepts it's more about songs for you and is it just a case of you know we've got enough songs and here it (laughs) is we got another record
5: i don't know if we've ever really done a concept album but basically blondie albums really are a concept overall because we tried to do a variety of different styles and interpret them according to, you know, our style of making music and the sounds that we get. So yes, we do prefer songs, you know, good compositions, and uh, we try to sort of make an arc, you know, and and have sort of a, a theatrical kind of emotional flow to the to the songs.
4: I want to get back to what Greg was saying about technology, Debbie. You look back at the history of the band 76, 77, 78, and it it was kind of a struggle for all of those great bands that were coming out of New York to, to get signed to labels. And you were all on major labels, but there was kind of a begrudging sense that, that well, we better get on top of this new wave or punk rock train. Maybe the Ramones didn't get the push they deserved. and Maybe Blondie didn't get the push until, you know, the third album. If the digital... Accessibility—the ability to make an album in your bedroom this afternoon and share it with the world this evening—had uh, been there in the punk era. Do you think things would have been different?
5: Well, sure, uh, absolutely. Um, not necessarily better, but certainly different. <laughs> yeah.
4: Well, I think always <laughs> Patty Smith talking about you know working that long summer to raise the money for that first single she made, or you know, and and there was, there was doubt for a while that any of the bands out of the Lower East Side would get signed.
5: Well, I mean, there were. You know people like Terry York and uh, you know Seymour was down there kind kind of early and Marty Thal. they were aware of it and they they were the kind of uh, music guys and, and record guys that they sort of thrived on that semi kind of underground atmosphere, and uh, they really sort of weren't afraid of it and I think that sort of the straight kind of business guys you know record industry guys were didn't know what to make of it, mm. and they certainly didn't feel comfortable. As you say, I think a lot of them kind of resented it.
3: I think you gave a great answer when you said, well, what's the what's the theme, what's the coherent thread of these blind records? And it is, I think, the stylistic diversity. On the new record, you've got a song in French, you've got a song with some Spanish on it, you've got some Latin rhythms, Caribbean rhythms, all these different styles of music that you were exploring. And I remember... From an early stage, it seemed like that was characteristic of a lot of Blondie records. You guys were not afraid to sort of do this kind of wide-ranging music. aware of that from the start, that this is what, what it was going to be, or did that just happen to be what you ended up being interested in? Was it was it a conscious decision, I guess is what I'm asking.
5: Well, I think that those are the, you know, we were sort of always intrigued by those uh, different influences and, and felt that they were really a part of our world, and not necessarily that it was world music, but it certainly was uh, indicative of the ethnic diversity of New York, and the musical experiences that, you know, that we had and, and things that we liked.
3: When you said you kind of were coming more from an underground sensibility, I think there was also, in reading about the band in those era, and, You know, I saw some of those early shows. I remember you opening for Iggy and, uh, and Bowie. Mm-hmm. And I think even then those audiences were kind of like, what, where, what is this? It's kind of punk, it's kind of underground, but yet there's also this pop sensibility. Did you see those two worlds as kind of being together? Because I don't think... I think for a lot of bands, that was sort of a dividing line. I think one of the differences, Greg, like right was or that, not
4: you know, everybody in Blondie had the chops to yeah. play the pop, and people, you know, a lot of the other bands at the CBGB scene may have wanted to be pop, but they really couldn't play. Right, right. In the best way.
5: No, well, thank you. I don't know. I think that we were sort of... We had a dark side to uh, the lyric, and yet we certainly didn't match up thematically with what was being played on the radio, but as a girl singer, you know, I certainly didn't envision myself as being a Janis Joplin type, you know. I, I was more influenced by uh, the R&B girl singers, and I think that that sort of was a clear indication about which way to go. that, you know, we liked the idea of, you know, concise musical themes that, you know, were entertaining, I guess.
3: That also went with, hand in hand, with sort of a visual flair that you guys had, which was pre-MTV, obviously. There wasn't a video channel on at the time. No. And I know that, you know, obviously, again, the New York thing, the fashion, the style, but were you thinking about... How we're going to present ourselves as a visual thing as much as a sonic thing when you when you were thinking about the band, or again, was that just sort of it just happened? Because you ended up being being a style icon as well as a musical icon. Mm-hmm.
5: Well, I think that we all had our styles then. I think that it it, it was uh, seemed very um, paramount, you know, that we wanted to, you know, have a visual. I think that that's. Uh, part of it was part of the sort of time I suppose that everyone sort of had their look and tried to organize the look a little bit and I think that uh, that sort of mod thing was easy for us to it was accessible you know it was, uh, was around mm-hmm. in a way that it wasn't uh, sort of fashionable but yet it it was there it was easy for us to get hold of because it was sort of you know, junk store kind of stuff.
3: What kind of feedback were you getting early on when pe- when people were starting to figure out who you were? Was it negative, positive? How were people reacting to to the way you guys presented yourselves on stage?
5: I, I think it was, you know, all different ways. You know, we were definitely a part of the scene there, and, and I think that, you know, we were all, all kind of, you know, struggling to understand who we were and to... Experiment.
1: All I want is a room with a view, a sight for seeing a vision of you. All I want is a room with a view.
5: Chris and I were very, um sort of more, more experimental than say you know Johnny Thunders or somebody like that I think Johnny sort of really had his direction mapped out and, and I think the Ramones were pretty clear about what they were doing and I think you know Patty was too I always felt that you know that it, at first I think that that's really what screwed us up because we were you know all over the place doing all to, all different kinds of things and, um, and then in the long run it really it really uh, worked for us
4: You're listening to Sound Opinions, and we're talking with Debbie Harry of Blondie. Debbie, uh, one of the legacies from the band that stretches into the present is the way that it mixed disco and rock and roll. Now, this wasn't a popular move in a lot of parts of the country. We had those disco demolition riots here in Chicago. Mm -hmm. A lot of people hated dance music as a genre. They didn't want it mixed with rock. For example, I think it was kind of brave of you guys to work with Giorgio Moroder on that big hit, Call Me. at a place like CBGB, there were things that were cool, there were things that were out of bounds. And dance music was one of them. And Blondie wanted to dance.
5: Yes, I think that actually that was a very early on concept that we were sick and tired of audiences just sitting and not participating. and We wanted, although interactive wasn't a word Mm. at the time, but we really wanted to have uh, more of an interaction with the audience and dancing seemed to be something that had sort of disappeared and people were just sort of being very astute and scholarly about the music and just sort of you know which which was fine but you know we wanted a little bit more
4: Yeah, you look back at those early pictures of CBGBs now, and there's a bunch of guys who look like they're in college with their arms folded, not having a lot of fun. Often, when you see those pictures from the stage, which looks exactly like pitchfork circa 2011, (laughs) you know. Whereas in England, people were pogoing up and down, and well, you know, there was downside too. They were spitting at the stage and stuff, right?
5: Well, I think that um, the difference, you know, that didn't last very long. I think that the New York audience is. uh, got very um, excited and, and, you know, were really dem- demonstrative pretty early on. Um I think that the, the British audiences, they got a lot more press. Mm. You know, the whole system of, of press over there was very immediate and music goes out very quickly there. One of the most fun things that I, you know, discovered over there early on was that, you know, People would not necessarily entertain at home, but they would go to the pubs and everybody sang mm. in the pubs. They just, you know sat around and, and sang. <laughs> so I mean, that musicality was a, a sort of a, a stronger identity, I think.
3: Well, the disco thing was, was amazing. You also introduced a lot of people to rap music. You guys embraced that very early on. Rapture was a huge hit. People were, going, "Oh, you know it's, oh, what is this? This is rap music?" because Blondie was doing it. Suddenly it was accessible and it was like it led people to other things.
1: Five Five Freddy told me everybody's side hey. DJ spinning, I said my, my Flash is fast, Flash is cool Francois said bar, Flash ain't no do And you don't stop, sure shot Go out to the parking lot
3: So I'm curious. People associate Blondie with CBGB, etc., but it sounded like you were hanging out at rap clubs and Studio 54. And well, the that's disco the thing, thing about New
5: York. You yeah. Know, I mean, it's all a very immediate. That that's what I was saying about you know we we enjoyed all those different influences and interpreted them. You know, we did it, you know sort of Blondie style. I can't honestly say that we uh, did a rap song. We did an homage to rap, and it was the first rap song that yeah. went to number 1 or and was on, you know, straight radio. So I mean, I, I'm I think I'm really proud of that and I have to give, you know, creds to to Chris, you know, he's a visionary in many respects and I think that his love for reggae and and rap and you know, a lot of the, the different feels. I mean, we even tried to do sort of a latin feel on the first album, but I we <laughs> I'm really flattered that you thought that we had chops, but <laughs> we didn't have very much chops and you know some of the some of the things that we tried to do didn't really work out. They sort of fell flat, but those ideas were always there and you know they've become uh, more explicit and more developed over the years.
4: Debbie, how did you feel about the way Blondie was sold? I remember the press campaign being, is Blondie a band or or Blondie is a band? Mm-hmm. Was your status as this uh, larger-than-life front woman an issue in marketing the band?
5: Well, we had a disturbing relationship with a manager at that time, mm. and he wanted me to drop the band. He wanted me to go solo. He wanted to <laughs> have control, and he really – in a way, you know, his vision was correct because – you know, I could have been Madonna. Yeah. But, you know, here I was in this relationship with Chris, and being in a band was a comfort zone for me. And um, he was very angry when I said no, that I, I wouldn't go solo. And so he started that campaign, mm. you know, Blondie as a group, because I really was being called Blondie, which yeah. is, you know, fair. <laughs> Since, Since I thought of the name the front, and yeah. I bleached my hair, I actually said to the guys, you know, we should all bleach our hair. Mm. And that would have been, I thought, really cool.
3: On that point, I, I, I read a Trouser Press interview from the day. And in that piece, it was stated that you objected to the fact that the band was called Blondie because you knew that the, all the attention was going to be focused on you. No, and, it was and my idea. It
5: was my name. I created it. Yeah. I, well, I was walking along Houston and I was walking over to Chris's, and uh, guys were shouting Blondie at me, and I said, Oh, easy.
4: That's, that's the name. <laughs> it's done. <laughs>
1: I'll
3: meet ya. Yeah, well, those kids from the neighborhood really have defined uh, New York, and I think that was part of the big thing about the club scene for the 70s, 80s, and 90s there was, that, was the people you would meet in the clubs. It wasn't just about, you know, going and playing dress-up, but it was also about there were people there that you would learn from, and that sort of eclecticism that you talk about was so much a part of Blondie, I think, reflected the fact that you guys really did go out, and you were out at clubs, and you were seeing what was out there, the diversity of music, where, mm-hmm. as I think... A lot of times uh now you it's so easy to sort of get into a niche and, and do one thing and people get a lot of their culture now from the internet mm-hmm. as opposed to actually going mm-hmm. and seeing, seeing Talking the to people. Yeah.
5: Well I, I can't really say that one thing is better or worse, you know. It's kind of magical that there's this worldwide intelligence, you know, that is so so available to everybody. Although, you know, getting into, you know, a situation with another person close up is a, a really good learning experience, you know, the chemistry and, you know, physicality of the real world is kind of eh, – there's nothing like that. Mm-hmm. But then this other kind of intelligence that uh, is almost – it hasn't got to that stage, but in a way it's kind of like uh, mystical, mm. you know, this big intelligence. <laughs>
3: read an interview you'd done relatively recently and you said that you know a lot of people assumed that you kind of knew what you were doing and you said well I, now I look back I realize I wasn't and one of the things that it sort of you had noted about some of these later prominent women in music who had followed you is that there was a certain amount of calculation there they kind of had seemed to have a little bit more of a plan whereas you maybe didn't <laughs>
5: yeah well I think at the time that uh, there wasn't as much competition. You know, we were experimental. I mean, we sort of had Chris uh, went to vis- visual arts and I was interested in art. So uh, it was a sort of a, a kind of discovery in a personal way. And and then it became sort of technically um, kind of a discovery as well. And there was no value to it you know so we were sort of we had a lot of freedom there wasn't a yeah there wasn't an industry that was you know clamoring for the next you know hot babe mm. then it sort of became all oh, well mm-hmm. we can really do this let's let's really go for it and then then it was you know sort of the idea well oh, you have to do another heart of glass. You have to do another hanging on the television. You have to do another dreaming. You know, they sort of wanted the this, this same kind of routine, and, and, you know, we sort of had to, you know, fight for it a little bit, you know, to to reach out and to do the things that we felt, you know, was part of our tradition.
3: You keep getting hit with this as a role model, but uh, how do you feel about that? The fact do you feel like you've had that sort of impact that people... Ascribe to you.
5: I mean, it's not something that I walk around thinking every day. You know, that la la la. If it hadn't been me, it would have been somebody else. Because I, oh, I've always felt that you know it was an idea whose time had come. That the industry, you know, really had it, it would happen.
4: Debbie Harry, it's been a pleasure having you in our studio. Thanks for coming on Sound Opinions.
5: Well, it's been great fun talking to you and walking down the mushy memory lane. Yeah. <laughs>
3: I want to remind you out there to share your opinions on sound opinions who do you think are the women who most changed rock history and what are your memories of blondie in the 70s and 80s call us at 888-859-1800 we're going to be back shortly on sound opinions from wbez chicago and prx with a review of the new album by another music vet leonard cohen
0: He just doesn't have the freedom to refuse.
4: Welcome back to Sound Opinions. That is a song called Going Home by Leonard Cohen from his 12th studio album in a four decades plus career. The new record is called Old Ideas, ironically enough. Leonard Cohen, Montreal-born... 1934, Greg, a year before Elvis Presley or Ronnie Hawkins, to a middle-class Jewish family, picked up the guitar at 13, but really never mastered it. It was always poetry that was his obsession. Nevertheless, he wound up with this accidental, almost, musical career. And among songwriters, and I'm talking people like, you know, Bob Dylan, right? He is the songwriter's songwriter. I think Dylan once famously said he wishes he'd written a tune as great as Hallelujah. There's been a renaissance, I think, in recent years. Always an uneven career for Cohen. He would make a record, he would tour, and then he would disappear for a long time. He spent much of the 90s cloistered away in a Buddhist monastery. He is he's a devout Buddhist. But in the early 90s, there was, I think, a turning point with a record called I'm Your Fan, The Songs of Leonard Cohen, that featured people like the Pixies, Nick Cave, R.E.M., and John Cale. That started people of our generation worshiping this guy as a songwriter. I think its pinnacle was when Jeff Buckley. Covered his song Alleluia, and arguably we started to hit Overkill when Alleluia appeared not once but twice on the soundtrack to Shrek. In 2009, Cohen undertook a tour, uh, pretty much a worldwide tour. We both saw him here in Chicago. There was a live album from the London concerts. It was prompted in large part, tragically, by the fact that in 2005 he had to sue his longtime manager. While Cohen was away at the Buddhist monastery, the manager was ripping him off to the tune of $5 million, according to this lawsuit. And now in his late 70s, Cohen was broke. We've had the career renaissance. We had the comeback tour. Triumphant three-hour shows, his greatest songs. Now he's got a new album for the first time. As I said, it's the 12th of his career, Old Ideas. Let's hear a song. We'll come back and give our opinions. This is Leonard Cohen with Show Me the Place on Sound Opinions. Show me the
0: place where you want your slave to go. Show me the place of forgotten I don't know Show me the place For my head is bending low Show me the place Where you want your slave to go Show me the place Help me roll away the stone. Show me the place I can't move this thing alone Show me the place where the word became a man. Show me the place where the suffering began. The troubles came, I saved what I could see. A thread of light, a particle away. But there were chains. So I hastened to behave, there was change. So I loved you like a slave. Show me the place where you want your slave to go. Show me the place I've forgotten, I don't. bend and low show me the place where you want your sleeve to go
3: that's leonard cohn with show me the place from his new album old ideas Cohen makes albums very sparingly, Jim. As he said, this is only the 12th studio album in 44 years from this guy. Reputation as a stone cutter. Yes, he takes his time. But that usually means the quality control is pretty good. The songs are going to be pretty much up to par. He's not going to release anything that he hasn't stewed over for a few years and, and, and made sure is really good, especially from a, in the word department. What's really let me down about Cohen's albums in the, really the last two decades is the production. It's been terrible, almost unlistenable. He's got this fixation with these keyboards, these, these cheesy synthesizer sounds, and it really doesn't suit the songs very well. Finally, on old ideas, he's cleared away the clutter and gone back to a style similar to his earlier albums, when he was allowing the lyrics to be at the forefront, and the music was sort of a backdrop. If possible, this guy's voice has gotten even lower over the years. I mean, it's hard (laughs) to believe. But now he really sounds like the priest giving you the last rites or the prison warden leading you to your execution. You do not want to hear this voice as your last sound on earth because you know bad things are going to happen. But in the course of that, instead of just sort of doing this dying of the light album that have become this cottage industry in the music industry, Street lately, uh, where guys of a certain age are singing about mortality and facing the abyss and all that stuff. There's a lot of humor. There's almost no sentimentality in this record. It's all about, I'm still wrestling with aging and love and romance and all this stuff. And it's kind of a tragic comedy in some ways. I really love Cohen as a songwriter. I mean, Who doesn't, really? But for once, you can really hear the songs because I think the production is pulled back far enough where it
4: really allows those songs and those lyrics to shine. It's a buy-it album as far as I'm concerned. Well, I love Leonard Cohen, Greg, but I I, I have to give this a burn-it because the production still bothers me intensely. It is not as bad as the last, like, three records that were dominated by those awful synthesizers. Instead, it's got this yuppie, jazz club, supper club, cabaret vibe. You know, I I was sort of disappointed with the 2009 tour, the show that that we saw together and reviewed. It was very polite. It was very mannered. There are often times when the background singers are are taking over from Leonard Cohen and just cheesy strings and and just, just too much cheese. If the guy had sat and made, again, a Rick Rubin kind of Johnny Cash record, real spare with just guitar, something a little bit rougher, what if Jack White had produced this record? What if we'd got gotten some grit and some gumption so that the music matched the songs because i don't want to be like the english major rock critic who sits there and parses the lyrics and takes all of his joy from there i want the music to be every bit as good there are some wonderful lines absolutely but i'm going to wait for people to cover these songs and do superior versions as jeff buckley and john cale did with hallelujah to really enjoy them i'm glad leonard cohen is thriving at 77 and still making music but it's a burn it record for me what do we got on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we're going to look at the year 1967, the year of the birth of the album as art. Greg, as always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Sound Opinions is produced by Jason Saldana and Robin Lynn, with the able assistance of Annie Minoff, And our fearless leader, our executive producer, is Tori southside Malatia, a man who still has a huge crush on Debbie Harry. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say.
5: New messages.
4: So,
6: you asked about the most iconic album cover of all time.
5: I would have to say it's Enjoy
6: the Wall. I gotta go after Weasels With My Flesh, the Zappa cover. Surely, Sergeant Pepper's got to be right up there with any of the rest of him.
5: Had to be Bob Marley's Catch a Fire, which is the Zippo lighter that actually opened.
6: Almond Brothers Eat a Peach with the uh, watermelon. Yes, Andy Warhol is great, but you cannot ignore the Dark Side of the Moon by Pink Floyd. Nirvana's never mind.
5: One that I could always find the most easily: The Beatles' White Album.
6: You gotta consider Abbey Road. Surely, Abbey Road deserves a mention. Uh, hey guys this is justin in chicago i would say it's almost a factual question if you were to show slides of various album covers to rock fans and non-fans alike the one that people would identify instantly in my opinion is the beatles abbey road With Abbey Road, there's that whole subtext, the whole Paul is dead, the apologizing the license plate. the various clues, the why is he barefoot, is George the Undertaker, all that stuff. And for the last 40 years, the cover has been getting photoshopped, taken out of context with everybody but the Beatles crossing Abbey Road. So yeah, no question, Abbey Road for sure, most iconic. Thanks for the show, guys. Leave me alone. Yo, this is a D.C. Jackson. I'm actually calling from Vermont right now. The short, less than two-minute song. Man, how can you leave Brian Wilson out? You just got to go with Brian. And I got to tell you, one of the hot ones, Shut
1: Down. It happened on the strip where the road is wide. Two cool shorts standing side by side, yeah.
6: I know. It's cheesy. It happened on the strip where the road is wide. But man, it comes in at what, 150 or something? It's got that back solo. You got, you got to give them props. And if you want to kind of go deep album, you, you go with Custom Sheet. You can look and don't touch my Custom Sheet. That clock's in at like 140 or So there you go, bro. Peace out. Shut it off, shut it off,
1: buddy. Now I shut you down.
6: Hi, this is Terry from Oak Park, Illinois. Um, in your review of songs under two minutes, I was just a little disappointed that you did not include what I think was the last number one hit that was under two minutes, and that was The Letter, recorded by the Box Tops in 1967. It was sung by Alex Chilton when he was 16 years old. I don't care
1: how much money I gotta spend Got to get back to my baby again.
6: Its very brevity was the subject of a line in the movie Almost Famous, in which Philip Seymour Hoffman, playing the great rock critic Lester Bangs, says,
4: "Did you know that the letter by the Box Tops was a minute and 58 seconds long? It means nothing, nil." But it takes them less than two minutes to accomplish what Jethro Tall takes hours to not accomplish.
6: That's my comment. Thanks for your
1: indulgence. Listen, Mr. Can't you see? I got to get back to my baby once a am Anyway, yeah, a ticket for an aeroplane. Ain't got time to take a fast trip.